Welcome to episode 33 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast, and joined as always by my co-host Mary, who throws her Easter eggs at cars and doesn't put them in baskets. I am merely Darren. Hi, Mary. Hi, Darren. It's the Easter season. Gotta be festive. Gotta be festive. Oh, call it like it is. So how are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm just nothing but soft serving sunshine over here, Mary. It's a great, it's a great day. The sun is shining. The beers are flowing. It's podcast night. And we are talking about Shiloh today, which is very, very cool because this is a fun one to talk about. It is. Yes. And this will be part one of two that we are doing. So for the next two weeks, we are going to be talking about the Battle of Shiloh back in the Western Theater again, which we do seem to spend a lot of time in, but I'm okay with that. That seems to be my comfort zone. Well, we go back and forth, but I think you know, we've talked a lot about some of these smaller battles lately, Pea Ridge and Bentonville. And this is the first time really since Antietam, I think, we've talked about one of the big boys, which was the first big boy of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. We've talked about a whole bunch of different things. We've talked about a whole bunch of fun topics. But this is one that we like to say was the first oh shit moment in the Civil War, that this thing was going to go a lot longer than maybe the few months that people thought it was. We'll talk about some of the stories that went through with this, but it's one that really is an interesting one to talk talk about we have some guys doing good things guys do some not so good things we have a lot of big names in this one but it's one that i think is an important story to tell because you can't effectively tell the story of the american civil war without those april 6th april 7th 1862 days of pittsburgh Landing. no absolutely you can't and yeah it's it is one of the definitely like you said the oh shit moment you know they've already had first bull run by this point but this is the one that really well, I, makes them realize that you know and, and grant says after this battle that he realized that shit this is going to take a lot fucking longer than what we all thought like even grant was convinced ah oh, this might only be a few months and we'll we'll talk know, about that he wrote a letter to his wife thinking this was going to be up I'll be home soon. Don't yep. you worry about what's but what's interesting about Shiloh is not only are the people like the Grants who are really, you know, the mainstays when we talk about things like Shiloh, you talk about Grant, Double City Johnson. But this is that real the first time really that the soldiers really realize what was going to be going on. Whenever I think of Shiloh, I think of a guy named Henry M. Stanley. Have you heard of him? I He's recognize a soldier. the name. Okay. Well, he was from Wales and he came over in 1859 and he ended up joining the 6th Arkansas. He ended up finding himself at Shiloh. He had one of those cringe injuries where he was shot in the belt buckle and it knocked him down. And so he ends up getting captured and he ends up going off to Fort Douglas in Chicago and he ends up flipping teams and joins the Union Army a oh, year later. That's where I've heard of him right? before that and so, story. And then he, then he ends up joining the Union Navy and he probably is the only guy to so, serve in the Confederate Army, Union Navy and Union Army all in the same war. But what's interesting about him though, was interesting too, was after the war, he ends up up going looking to find a guy named David Livingston. He on the uh, Nile River, and he finds him. He's the one who coins that phrase, you know, Doctor Livingston. I presume that was him. Oh, right, so, yes, right. So this is an interesting story because he ends up being kind of a strange, circuitous Civil War route and ends up finding David Livingston. So I always think of him when I think of Shiloh. And there's a lot of good stories like this. But I think um, for Shiloh, certainly, you got to talk big picture, right? So biggest battle up to that point, you know, 23,000 total casualties, which is the highest single-day casualty figure up to that point. All wars combined, American Civil War, 1812, Mexico. This was more. It was a two-day thing. But what it really meant was... This was not going to be a quickie. This was going to be a long and prolonged thing, okay? And it was going to be one that was going to wake up a lot of people at this one. Things weren't going too good for the Rebs in the West, as opposed to the East, right? Jefferson Davis, he takes the oath of office on February 22nd, 1862. It's a cold and rainy, shitty day in Richmond that day. Happens to be Washington's birthday, ironically. He has that quote where he says, the tide of the moment is against us. And he's right, okay? You know, Mm -hmm. you got all this stuff going down. George Crittenden had just got pants at Mill Spring, Kentucky in January of 1862 by George, the Rock of Mill Springs, Thomas. He basically opens up Eastern Tennessee to that point. We talked before in previous podcasts. I don't know if you remember that. It's been a couple of weeks, Mary. But this, um, Fort Donelson falls to Grant. It is a catastrophe for the Confederate Army. They lose 13,000 guys, a third of their total in the East Mississippi area. They lose instantaneously. And Fort Donelson falling. It creates that opens that entire Tennessee River all the way to Alabama. Nashville Falls, huge depot. Even John Pope has some success, Mary. He, Island number 10, he wins. That's right. In February of 1862. So all these things are going on in the face of 
what's happening in the West. And there's more stuff that's been going on that's, that's not good news for the Confederacy. The thing is, it's like Albert Sidney Johnson, who's who's leading them, and he's just been struggling because, you know, he's got Henry and Donaldson have fallen, and then you got Van Dorn in the shit show of Pea Ridge, you know, in the Trans-Mississippi Theater. Johnson, at this point, is now, you know, scrambling thinking I have to deliver a victory and he's getting pressure from Davis to do that. And as well, like Johnson's name has been smeared in the papers over what happened at Henry and Donaldson. He's being called incompetent. And Jeff Davis says of him, like, if we don't have Johnson as a general, we have nobody serious shit that that is, that is happening with the Confederates. And that's one thing to note about going into Shiloh that I don't think does, doesn't get talked a lot about is the pressure that Albert Sidney Johnston must have been feeling because he takes, and we'll talk probably more about this in the second episode. He takes mm-hmm. a lot of criticism. And I mean, he's going to, spoiler alert, he doesn't make it. Oh, you know, I was wondering. But you Were know, like, you? The, the, the West, the West, and we, we talk a lot about like in previous episodes how what Lincoln was going through at the, at the end of 19, 1862, going with, with Fredericksburg and stuff like that. It was no picnic in, in the spring of 1862 for the Confederacy. The Confederacy in the West was uglier than your medicine cabinet on a Saturday morning, Mary. It, it was not a pretty sight. You mean like when I run out of Advil? (sighs) Albert Sidney Johnson, to your point, he's the positive for Jefferson Davis. To your point, things are going shitty, right? He's that dog in the meme with the fire. It's fine. Because he's got Albert Sidney Johnson, his boy, still there. You know, uh, Albert Sidney Johnson, real quick, Kentucky, former classmate of Jeff Davis at Transylvania University, 1826 class at West Point. He had a real powerful personality. He was one of those infectious personalities, one of those guys that you like to follow. He was a very popular guy. You know, obviously Jefferson Davis loved him. He was a veteran of the Black Hawk War in 1832. Like how you said that. (laughs) Enunciate, very important. Black Hawk War? Um, But he fought fought under under Zachary Taylor. You may have heard of him in, in Mexico. He was also part of the Utah Expedition in 1857, where he had to have spent time with Winfield Scott Hancock Mary. Because they were out there at the same time. So he ends up, you know, obviously resigning his commission of the U.S. Army to join the Confederacy after secession. Davis, he sees what's going on. He needs to reorganize that army. He has all this bad news coming out of the West. But he's got Johnson. But he needs to stem that tide the best way he can. So he starts moving people onto the dance floor, as you like to say. He does. And one of them is Pierre Gustave Toutain Beauregard. He's a beautiful son. Yeah, I kind of stumbled that one a little bit. And just edit that one out later, Mary. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> but he, and I've he only had a half of, a beer. Uh, I don't God, understand. He a lot of guys are, he's going to order 5,000 troops from Daniel Ruggles. He's going to bring them north. He's going to get 10,000 troops under the Braxton Bragg. Mm-hmm. You may have heard of him too. Department of Alabama in Western Florida. And they're going to come to Albert City Johnson's aid. Johnson has got that 300-mile front, right, that runs from the Mississippi River east all the way to the Alleghenies. Which is a crazy area. I can't imagine managing that, you know. 300 miles. I mean, he only takes 30,000 whatever die. He doesn't have a lot of people, but he's the commander of the Western Military Department. Sounds very, very, but, you know, Gustav Tutant, PV, PGT Gort, uh, Borg. See, I can't say it now. <laughs> so, so how much? Guard, wait, wait, wait. How much have you had tonight? I had one. Oh, bullshit. Okay, anyway. Since you've been uh, sitting, oh, we I didn't even talk about what we were drinking. <laughs> oh, we did. I was going to say. Well, I'm drinking Jess IPA from Amherst brewery i'm drinking out of my unconditional surrender u.s grant mug and i am drinking misfit mango passion fruit ipa from hop city brewing company and i chose that tonight because we've often said that the western theater is a little bit like the island of misfit toys and i'm drinking it out of my william tecumseh sherman mug that little break was brought to you by i don't know okay beer very well done okay well thank you (laughs) beauregard he's he's gonna basically come over to help him now beauregard is another popular guy like you say he's a rock star. If there's a celebrity mm-hmm. general at that point, it's, it's Beauregard, right? Mm-hmm. The hero of Manassas and Fort Sumter. But he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to be there. So he gets sent unwittingly, or unwilling rather. He wants to go back to Virginia. He wants no part of this Western fiasco. He's been fighting that bronchitis all year. He's been sick of yep, all of 62. And he's just had throat surgery as well. So he's recovering from that. He ain't feeling too good. Uh, he's going to take command initially of being on his Polk's Corps, and he's going to basically hook up with William Hardy in what's left of that Crittenden's broken army from Mill Springs. That mess. He's going to all get together. 
On the union side, Henry and Donaldson fall. The feds are ready to go up the Tennessee River. They're going to basically open the door and invade all the way to Alabama, right mm-hmm. to Mississippi. So things are going good in the north, right? And, you know, Beauregard and Johnson, they know they've got a slow grant. You know, they just know they have to. So they're going to concentrate their forces. So they, they need to, you know, send out the bat signal and bring everybody. What they're going to do is they need to defend a, a railroad called the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, which is critical because it's the only railroad that links the Mississippi River to the Atlantic seaboard. It's the big railroad. They're going to congregate in a place called Corinth, Mississippi, a small little town, not much going on in northeast Mississippi. But it's a, it's a strategic railroad junction of, of the Memphis-Charleston Railroad where it crosses the Mobile, Ohio Railroad. Mm. Big, big stopping ground. They're going to basically bring everyone together. They're going to bring about 45,000 guys are going to converge on Corinth. Probably the biggest crowd that I ever saw. Corinth is just like a small little town. Very small population and all that. So now it's suddenly a focal point in the Civil War. And they're going to basically, they're going to reorganize the army of, into the army of, the, of Mississippi under Albert Sidney Johnson. They're going to mix it up a little bit. I was going to say into four corps. First corps is going to be Leonidas Polk. Second corps, Braxton Bragg. Third corps, William Hardy. And the fourth corps, the John Breckenridge. And Breckenridge is replacing Crittenden because Crittenden was caught being drunk on duty. We'll be guessing the podcast someday then. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But the thing about it is they have all these guys, but they're coming from all over the place. And the army is a mess, the Confederate army. Some guys have no uniforms. Some guys have different uniforms. They may have been porky pig in it. We don't know. They are all different levels. Braxton Bragg, he says, this is not an army. This is more of a mob, he says. Or Bragg says it. That's something, right? Yeah. The other issue they have is the weapons are bad. They have very bad oh, issues. Oh, yeah. So, you, you know, out of out of the forty five thousand guys, like only ten thousand have real muskets. The rest of these guys have smooth bores and footlocks and squirrel rifles and shotguns and and a bunch of stuff. Whatever you have, bring it. Come along. We're gonna we'll have have a good time. But the spirits of the troops are good overall because they see themselves as we're coming to save the day. And a lot of them are green troops too. A lot of these guys have never really seen battle before. They're pretty pumped. The North, conversely, they're in a great mood. Life is great in the West anyway. Due to those recent wins we talked about, Fall of Donaldson, there's a big gun salute here in Boston at Bunker Hill to celebrate the Fall of Donaldson. Go imagine the beer that was drank in the city that day, Mary. Many feel at this point the war is going to be over quick, Mm -hmm. that this is the final death throes of the Confederacy, and they feel like they got it. Yeah, they do. Johnson needs to start planning, you know, what to do. And it's actually Beauregard. That steps up and says, this is what we can do. They, they've realized that the Federals are amassing at Pittsburgh Landing, and it's Braxton Bragg who is the one to figure that out. So this is another thing to note about this episode is as much of a shit show as Bragg kind of is at like Chickamauga and Chattanooga and later on in the war, he's kind of doing something competent here at this battle, you know, and he said, hey, these guys are amassing at, at uh, Pittsburgh Landing. We need to do something. Beauregard convinces Johnson to, as you said, they're amassing all these forces. And Johnson at first is like, I don't know if I want to do that, because by doing that, he's risking something and he's risking the city or the town of Chattanooga at this point with doing that because he's got to bring all these forces together. And, you know, opening up Chattanooga, he's also opening up Georgia, which is, as we know, the the Union is ultimately going to get there in the end. But what Johnson doesn't have is he doesn't have the troops that were captured at between Fort Henry and Donaldson, which is, I think, was around 13,000. So he's down Mm -hmm. that many. And he also doesn't have Van Dorn's troops because of what happened at Pea Ridge. That was a big one because he was the reinforcements coming to join join Johnston. Exactly. So he's a little bit hesitant at first to go and with him, what, with what Beauregard is saying. They end up with similar numbers for the most part, not that different when yeah. you look at actual fighting guys. But when you realize you could have had a, probably 25,000 more guys, it ends up being a big deal. You yeah. mentioned before the the unions converging. So what they're trying to do is they're also trying to convert, you know, bring everybody together. Halleck, who sees himself as the man here, oh, he's, he's, he's going to take fucking he's Grant take, around ever since Don, Henry and Donaldson. He, he's taken all the credit for, for Donaldson. Yeah. Okay. He wants to murder all the western armies into one naturally under his command he and sees himself as marching them the last right? i think 20 miles to pittsburgh landing or whatever and we talk know? about all those political aspirations so march 11 they make him the commander of the western armies henry halleck mm-hmm. say what you will about halleck because not a lot of good things about halleck but he's going to be aggressive he's going to order don carlos buell the army of the ohio to meet up with charles f smith and they're going to meet at a place called savannah tennessee 
We don't know if they're coming from the rear or not, but that's where they're going. They're going to Savannah, okay? Don Carlos Buell is having issues because he's slow. He's slow. So he gets delayed. For whatever reason, he's going to leave Nashville, and he's going to go to Savannah, Tennessee, which is about 100 miles. It's not that far. Mm-hmm. But instead of taking the boat, he goes over land. And it's supposed to be a nine-day trip. It takes 22 freaking days because they get stuck in bad weather, bad roads, all kinds of stuff. Meanwhile, you know they're going to get there. The whole plan was to meet at this area. Mm-hmm. They're going to cut the rebel communications, but that was going to be their staging ground. Grant's going to want to concentrate there, get all six divisions near Savannah. He wants them there by the end of the end of March, which he, he ultimately does. He sets up most of his army on a bank west of the Tennessee River to, to where you set a bit ago called Pittsburgh Landing. And that's going to be kind of their staging ground for what they want to do. Grant on the 17th of March, which I think is St. Patty's Day, he's going to make his headquarters at a place called Cherry House, which is across the Tennessee River on a bluff overlooking the river. Pittsburgh Landing, great place to be, Mary. It's got plenty of, uh, plenty of places to camp. It's open. It's protected. It's flanked by three creeks, the Snake Creek, the Owl Creek, and the very popular Lick Creek. And it's going to give you protection on from three different flanks. The terrain is mostly wilderness. There's a lot of deep ravines. It's easy to defend. It's probably clowns. There's all kinds of things to keep the Confederates away. So it's a great place to, to set up an army. It is. It's also a shitty place to fight a battle too, when you think about it. But I mean, they're not going to, I mean, Johnston and Grant aren't going to get together beforehand and be like, hey, how about we not fight here? You know, meet at the bar beforehand and be like, this is shitty. I don't think old Winnie would have said it's very good ground. Very, very good ground. <laughs> hey, I wasn't that Howard? Said, no. The Gettysburg was good. I know. <laughs> Just trying oh, to get Howard. There's your, okay, there's your Howard. Okay. All right. Anyway, and then mentioned about, oh, Howard brought to you by Obsession for Mary. So Pittsburgh Landing is about two two miles northwest of a small little Methodist church called Shiloh Meeting House, which in Hebrew stands for, everybody knows, stands for Place of Peace, Mm -hmm. which is ironic, right? Grant's going to set up his force on a plateau, and he's going to make a huge mistake with the place we're going to talk about. He's going to set up this little force uh, near Shiloh Meeting House, but what he's going to do, he's going to position his guys based on when they get there instead of their experience. And we mentioned before how a lot of these Rebs don't have experience. A lot of these Union guys have no experience. And they've never found their, fired no. their weapons in, in anger. So he's going to basically place the 5th Division under a guy named William Tecumseh Sherman on the right-hand side. And Benjamin Prentice is going to be on the left, the 6th course. The 5th and 6th Division are going to be along a place called the Hamburg Purdy Road near the church. Mm-hmm. Just like saying the name, Hamburg Purdy Road. But they're going to have a lot of green, fresh troops that have never seen battle on the front line. The tested divisions, guys like McLaurin, his first, Hurl Butts, his fourth, and William H.L. Wallace, his second, they're going to be in the rear because those are the ones who arrived later. Mm-hmm. And they haven't got Buell yet. They don't have Lou Wallace yet. They're going to be coming later. But when this whole thing starts, you've got about 48,000 guys. The army's cocky. They think this is, a, we said before, they think this is a joke. Oh, they do. Um, but if this thing was going to be over soon, that they got rebel deserters coming through the line saying that the Confederates are a mess. They're thinking, okay, we're going to wrap these guys up pretty quickly. Grant writes to his wife, I want to whip these rebels one more time in a big fight. So he's thinking, I want to spike the ball. Sherman's right? kind of thinking that way too in his memoirs. Now, keep in mind, he's writing this in his memoirs. We'll talk about what happens to Sherman at Shiloh on day one. He says, from about the 1st of April, we were conscious that the rebel cavalry in our front was getting bolder and more saucy. I just wanted saucy. to say that quote because it had the word saucy in it. I'm being saucy. But, <laughs> but you know what, though? The problem you have to is, is Grant, they don't really know where the rebels are. Either. No, they don't. So you have, a, you have a combination of cocky and ignorance. Okay, which is never a good idea. Okay, no. He writes basically. I have this. I have scarcely the faintest idea of an attack being made upon me on, on upon us, but we'll be prepared should an attack take place. This is the day before the battle. So mm-hmm. the day before, ultimately, which should have been the second day of the battle, we'll talk about that in a second. He's not sure where they are even. Go back a couple of days on the Confederate side, Beauregard. You know he knows. Buell's coming, and he knows that Lou Wallace is coming. He, he gets some intel by uh, Benjamin Cheatham that Lou Wallace is basically on the movies about 25 miles away. He knows he's coming. He also knows that Buell is finally across a place called the Duck River, 
which is not far away. So he knows they're coming. So he knows the opportunity is now. So he wants to he wants to fight. He knows um, he wants to contalk, attack this army before Grant consolidated. Battle plan you mentioned before, which was very similar, ironically, to Napoleon's Waterloo battle plan. Mm-hmm. You study your other history, Mary. He's going to basically plan this attack in waves, which is going to prove to be a disaster, first of all. He's going to set up his army. He's going to poke his, his corps on the left-hand side with Bragg in the middle and Hardy on the right. Breckridge is going to be in reserve. So three in front, one in the back, right? But the plan is he wants to get around the Union left. He wants to get between them and the river to cut off their retreat. And he wants to push him back in that marshy area where all the clowns are. That's who wants to push him back, right? And that's going to fall apart. But what he does wrong is if you're going to do that, if you're going to attack them on the left, right? That's where you put all your guys. Exactly. He doesn't do that. He no. puts them even across the They're, whole front. Yeah. Johnston gets criticized for not stepping in and saying, mm-hmm. hey, I think this sounds fucked up. But then again, you have to remember like the position Johnston is in right now where, you know, he's like, I need a victory and maybe this will work. And, you know, they don't know exactly where the Union troops are. Like Johnson was very hesitant at first, but then apparently like, I guess Beauregard was really enthusiastic about it. I, I can't imagine right. how Beauregard would be when he's enthusiastic, but Apparently, Johnson did like a complete mood swing on that. I'm sure you're familiar with those doing this podcast with me. Tuesday. Um, Yeah. Tuesday nights, right? (laughs) Tell my story. Anyway. But, but but the other issue too is we talk about the Union guys not being there. The Confederates aren't there either. So the, the not all the troops are in Corinth yet. The plan is dependent on a coordinated movement of troops scattered over a thirty mile area. Now again, these a lot of these guys are green. And as Colonel once said, it's not easy being green. They're going to basically try to meet at a place called Mitchie's, which is about eight miles south of Pittsburgh Landing. Mm-hmm. It's an intersection of roads, almost like a little mini Gettysburg. All the roads lead here. They want to meet there. These guys are going to have to march 20 miles in one day to get there. And they, again, these are inexperienced troops. They don't exactly walk very well as far as distance goes. There's bad roads. So you know it's a complete disaster. Yeah, the rains don't help either, which we've mentioned the weather. Like, just the, the mm-hmm. weather is is going to play a huge role in this battle. It know? does. On the, the the battle's supposed to start on the 4th of April. Yeah. So the rain is going to push that back. And it's a, it's a solid rain. It's going to push Hardy and Bragg 12 hours behind schedule. They don't even start to leave until mid-afternoon on the on the fourth, so no, they the gate can't. is supposed to be there. They just they're stuck in the mud, right? Yep. Albert City Johnson he reschedules the start of the attack until the morning of the fifth. Now it's still raining. By noon, Bragg is still not there. Hardy is in his defense. Yeah, and who's that, leading know, Hardy's troops? Oh, I don't know. Would it be Claiborne? Yep, Claiborne's <laughs> leading the way. <laughs> I know. But Albert City Johnson sees hard. He doesn't see Bragg. And you know what he is? He's pissed now. Because this whole thing is based on timing. You don't have a lot of it. Mm-hmm. He's livid at Bragg because his division is missing. Flashback or flash forward to, you know, Five Forks, with what we talked about last week. So City Johnson starts, he goes looking for Bragg and he finds him about four miles back. They're blocked on a road. I don't know if it was the Suez Canal where they were stuck, but they were stuck on a road and they couldn't move. There's a big traffic jam that's being caused by Polk's wagons and his artillery. So they can't get through it. They don't even start moving until 4 p.m. that day. They finally get there later. They finally get moving. They make that four-mile run to get to uh, to Mitchie. But again, Johnston has to hold postpone the attack again. The night of the 5th, Hardy is going to set up in front of the, the Federal line about a mile he tells his troops to, for the love of God, shut up and be quiet. The whole thing is based on secrecy. Please be quiet. But of course, they're they're young. They're cheering. They're yelling. Yep. They're firing their guns to make sure they're dry from the rain. And so you can only imagine, dude, dude shut up. Yep. You know. And then you know, there's a story where Berger rides by his horse. And they're all going, woo you know. And they're like, whatever. Albert City Johnson at this point says, well, let's have a council of war. Okay. I don't know if Bragg was there or not, Mary. He was. But you'll, if everybody was there at the same you'll, time. You'll call me all later on that. So he has a council of war and says, fellas, what do you think? Beauregard, who's been spearheading this, he says, you know what? Fuck this. Yeah, fuck that. We, it can't happen. We, but... lo- we lost the surprise. 
The guys are tired. It's friggin' raining. Let's go back to Corinth and let's just resettle and just figure this thing out. And yep. Bragg naturally agrees with him. Johnston not ain't having it. He decides, you know, we're going to attack in the morning at dawn. We're going to do it anyway. He has that quote. He says, tomorrow we'll water our horses in the Tennessee River. Yep. He was a confident fellow. That's what it was. Very. And he does make a speech to the, the troops the night before the battle as well, where he says, I have put you in motion to offer battle to the invaders of your country. You can but march to a decisive victory over the agrarian mercenaries sent to subjugate and dis- despoil you of your liberties, property, and honor. And at one point I had, when I was reading his speech, I had to think of Van Dorn's speech that he gave before Pea Ridge. And this one is kind of the exact opposite of that. It's actually in a way kind of like, it's very eloquent. But he also mentions like that they're fighting for mothers, wives and sisters. He ends it by saying the eyes and hopes of 8 million people rest upon you. You are expected to show yourselves worthy of your face and lineage, worthy of the women of the South, whose noble devotion in this war has never been exceeded at any time. It kind of reminded me of Van Dorn's speech, except it's a little bit more eloquent than what Van Dorn's was, where the troops would have been all like, what the fuck? is he talking about you know so johnson's giving this speech to because at this point johnson i think feels he's committed he can't turn back and beauregard has been the one to kind of spearhead him so the two have switched places beauregard was the enthusiastic one before and now johnston is the one that knows what's he's like no no we still have to do this But they had lost the element of surprise as of April 4th, because that night when Claiborne's men set up to camp, they actually end up, the first Alabama cavalry comes back through the woods and they're followed by Union troops. And Claiborne's men just deliver like a full volley on them. So at that point, you know, you know, those troops have went back and Mm -hmm. they're going to tell what's happening you know they're going to so, say these guys are getting close you know yeah, right and so the dawn comes april 6th the day of the battle first day of the battle and got him colonel everett peabody from springfield mass so he's probably a Sox fan went to harvard university he's the head of the first brigade and prentices division he's going to organize that patrol we talked right of the three companies the 21st missouri yep. and a couple from the, uh, the 12th michigan under james powell and you know it's, it's funny because there's been many times where people are told to do something they don't do it and this is another case of that yep. right he goes to prentice and says um, this guy would think of something up. I'm going to go. And he says, no, he's like, you know what? Nah, we're going, you know, they're going to head out that morning or late that night, stake out the enemy to a place called Shea Fields. When they get there, uh, they get fired upon. They, they realize they're in for and They don't have enough guys. So Powell has his 250 men into that skirmish line. They've ran to Fraley's fields and waiting in the woods, a third brigade commander under Hardy named Sterling A.M. Wood. Now I can tell you that many a guy in the morning wakes up in the morning, staring at, staring at a Sterling A.M. Wood. Okay. In this case, exactly <laughs> is what's going to happen with Powell. And so at five o'clock in the morning, He's going to get fired upon by that third Mississippi battalion, Aaron Hardcastle, Underwood, and they're going to get hit by that tree line. And this is really where the whole thing begins. This is where the whole thing goes off the track. Peabody is at his headquarters, and he hears that musket fire from a distance, and he's like, "What?" So he gets a message from Powell saying, "Hey, um, you know, we're, our patrol's getting pushed back. I'm going to need some help." So Prentice goes to Peabody's headquarters and says, um, and he's pissed. And he says, "Listen, uh." I told you not to bring on a general engagement. We're still working under under Halleck's orders not to bring one on. That was the original plan going back to Donaldson, remember? Mm-hmm. And they're still doing that. So he's upset. Grant's sitting at his headquarters over at that cherry house. Mm-hmm. He's having his breakfast and he hears the shots. And what does he say? The ball is in motion. The we got to get the fuck out. Motion, right? We got to get the fuck out. So we got to go. get rolling. So <laughs> by seven o'clock in the morning, Peabody's troops are moving forward. It sets up, they're setting up on a ridge near Shiloh Creek. And he can hear still that distant musket fire. And they're not sure who they're facing, but they know, they can sound, they can tell there's something behind it. Yeah. William Hardy's third corps is moving north in the darkness. 9,000 guys moving into the dark. Madison Miller, who is in charge of the second brigade on Apprentice, he's going to set up on Peabody's left. And while a battery under Andrew Hickett on the 5th Ohio unlimbers, and they're going to be also guys from the 1st Minnesota artillery as well. So they're trying to set up. They're going to try to set up and defend whatever's coming because they still really can't see it. So by 7.30, Peabody's troops see the enemy emerge from the woods ahead. Sterling A.M. Wood and Robert Shaw's 1st Brigade, they're coming. That first volley fires, staggers the Rebs back a little bit. Some Rebs take off, but most of them come forward. You can see what's happening. There's just not a lot of guys, and the Rebs are all moving forward. Yeah, there's one person that doesn't believe that they're there and he had been told that they were there the night before and that's William Tecumseh Sherman. The night before, April 5th, he gets visited by Jesse Appler 
of the 53rd Ohio goes to inform Sherman there's an attack imminent. So I'm guessing he's staked out where <laughs> it's probably where Claiborne's men are camped because they're right across from there. And Sherman just says to him, take your damned regiment back to Ohio. There are no Confederates closer than Corinth. If you read in his memoirs, you know, Sherman says that they had not fortified their camps against an attack because there were no orders to do so. And because such a course would have made our men timid. Again, Sherman's writing this years after and there's a lot of controversy surrounding, you know, were they caught off guard. And I think this comment that Sherman makes to Appler shows that, yeah, they, I think Sherman thought they were back as far as Corinth. And so when he gets up in the morning to go out and ride his lines, he is in for probably the surprise of his life when he goes out there. He does. He gets up and, you know, he sees those troops in the distance. He sees, you know, he sees the rebel troops in the distance there and he turns his attention to his right and he sees the advancing rebel skirmish line. He has that quote, my God, we're being attacked. Yeah. At this point, he's shot in the hand. One of four injuries he's going to sustain at Shiloh, he's going to ride back down and bring up the rest of his division. So yeah. his aide-de-camp holiday gets killed. Yeah. Right he sets up that skirmish line, the fifth, uh, fifth highway we talked about to hold the ground. And who, lo and behold, is advancing towards him? That guy you mentioned under Cardi a little while ago. Claiborne. This is actually Patrick. just side note, and we'll probably talk more about this in the second episode. This is where this rivalry and I think it's more in Sherman's end begins between him and Claiborne. I think Claiborne was in Sherman's head as much as Forrest was in Sherman's head. And it's because of what happens at Shiloh because he, Sherman is like, fuck, I am caught completely off guard. And yeah, it's, it's Claiborne's men that are advancing towards him. He's definitely his kryptonite. I mean, there's no question about it. Claiborne's going to advance. I mean, they're going to be coming through a swamp and there's that story where he gets thrown off the <laughs> horse and his mud. His and he's is... all pissed because now he's covered in mud. And he's a pretty boy. He doesn't want to be dirty and that whole suck. thing. But they're going to move towards that 53rd Ohio skirmish line in Ray Field, 23rd Tennessee and 6th Mississippi. There's that story where they kind of get lost and go up. They end up getting separated from their brigade and they get pounded by the 53rd Ohio and the rest of that 3rd Brigade under Jesse Hildebrand. They get posted north of the 53rd Ohio is where they were, but they end up really taking them out hard. The Rebs are really hit hard by artillery. The 6th Mississippi continues to assault Two times, actually, the line of the 53rd Ohio with that 23rd Tennessee, they take off. That 6th Mississippi loses 300 guys out of 425. Mm -hmm. 70% they lose. So that's a big loss. The 53rd Ohio gets pushed back. Colonel Appler, he yells, you know, well, exactly what we want to hear from your boss. Save yourself. (laughs) And 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 at that point, they're doing okay. But he says, everyone's Well, they are because Claiborne's artillery is unable to move through the swamp. So Claiborne is doing this without his artillery. His artillery is... Is basically like i'm sorry fuck that we can't do this and he doesn't see them again for the rest of the fucking day just, who knows where the fuck they went so they bail they end up going behind julius race third brigade under mcclernan those illinois guys race guys end up moving forward to support sherman's division at, at, at some point there's that quote that guy in the 21st missouri says we were dumbfounded by seeing the enemy's force of confederates moving forward so forward towards us so they were surprised there was no question they were surprised appler you know eventually retreats again goes back to pittsburgh land as does the rest of Hildebrand's brigade, they begin to fall apart by about 9, 9.30 in the morning or so. That gray wave continuing to push through. Sherman ends up being left pretty much undefended, he, except for a couple is. of guns. The two guns from Illinois, Captain Barrett and Captain Waterhouse, they're going to hold the line, almost like a peach orchard situation in yes. Gettysburg, where the artillery is saving the day. It is. And, and at one point, or, um, Claiborne shouts to his men, boys, don't be discouraged. Fix bayonets and give them steel. This is Claiborne's first experience in a big battle. He's just been made Brigadier General on March the 4th, 1862. This is his first time leading troops into a big battle, and I think he's doing pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. But but Sherman is also doing, considering he's caught, I, I do believe he was caught off guard, he is becoming the commander on this field until... Grant arrives, and that's going to be it's that's a couple hours into the battle that that Grant takes to arrive. O'Connell, in his book *Fierce Patriot*, that this says that this is where Sherman redeems himself from the crazy incident, you know, where he had to kind of take a leave from the army and all that, where he's coming back stronger than ever. His division is going to bear the brunt of this attack from Claiborne and his men, and they are going to slowly lose ground throughout the day to the point where they're not sleeping in their camps that night because, again, they're making breakfast when they get attacked. Act, right? So they've got to leave everything as is. But McClernand's division ends up coming into this as well. That does help when that comes it in. It does. 
was. I mean, I mean, you can see he just wasn't ready. As Colonel Ralph Buckland of that Fourth Brigade of Ohioans, they're going to be on the left of Claiborne's Brigade um, versus them. And they get driven back, and they're, they're all disorganized. And this is the point when the whole thing turns into a big mess on both sides. By nine o'clock in the morning, you've got Patton Anderson's Second Brigade under Ruggles and Bragg. So here comes Bragg now. He's going to move up to Sherman's left, and they're going to attack that Waterhouse Battery. Those guns mm-hmm. we were talking about. Waterhouse ends up leaving, loses a couple of guns, and then Bushrod Johnson enters the dance floor. Mary, his first brigade, and uh, and Robert Russell's uh, first brigade under Polk as well. So what's going on, too, is you're seeing the armies attacking. You're also seeing a lot of these soldiers entering this area of Shiloh Church. Now, the rebel command and control at this point is falling apart quick. They're having great success moving forward, but the guys are all over the place. The troops are intermingling now. This regiment's with the wrong brigade. This brigade's with the wrong division. They're all going all over the place. It's like herding cats at this point, and no one knows who the hell's supposed to be going where. Albert Sidney Johnson, this is when you kind of see him kind of sort of taking control. He's going to grab those five brigades, and he's going to push Push, uh, move on Peabody's vacated camp. So now they're starting to go through where, the, where they were. He ends up turning Sherman's left flank and breaks up the rest of those guns by Hildenbrand and forces him to bail. He orders John McDowell's brigade and Ralph Buckland's brigade on the right to basically ride to Owl Creek and set up with McClernand's first division. So you're seeing the beginning now of the defensive line, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to be coming later. McClernand, and to your point, you set him up nicely. That segue you did right there. <laughs> He's going to set up on that Hamburg-Purdy Road about a quarter of a mile from where Sherman's camp was. So by 10 o'clock in the morning on the 6th, things are looking good for the Rebs. But you know what's going on? They're running out of gas. Yep. They're running out of steam. Well, because they've been on the go since early morning. Since early dawn, right? Many had – at this point, they're they're happy – they're going through these abandoned camps and they're stopping. Yeah, they're starting to, to loop from the camps. They're plundering. They're, they're, they're drinking coffee. They're leaking. They're stealing clothes. They're just plundering the camp. It's they end like, up you know, taking these... Sherman's bad roll. He, yeah, they he, take a, he mentions that you know? so in the letters after this battle. He even tells his children, I don't even have a bad roll to sleep on anymore. He's such a fucking diva about it, like somebody else I know. Oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> he stole his bedroll, he stole his iPhone charger, he left from the tent. All the stuff, all the good stuff that he had was gone. But then Johnston comes riding through, and this this is at Prentice's camp, and he's, he basically says, boys, stop it. And he starts yelling at people, oh, you know, stop, stop doing that. But he sees the people getting yelled at by Albert Shane Johnson. They look like scared shit. Like, oh. so, so he decides, he, so he grabs a mug and says, well, this is my spoil. They all start cheering. It lightens them all. Doesn't he carry it around with him for the rest of the day? Not that he has that many hours left to live, but then he's like randomly waving this tin cup around. Should have put it behind his right knee. But he does it to lighten up his guys. Because again, he's a very personable, effervescent type of leader is what he is. And so the troops like him. But the Rebs at this point, they're taking high casualty numbers because everything they're doing is frontal. They've been fighting Sherman, been fighting Prentice. Those attrition numbers are showing. Uh, Claiborne and Bushrod Johnson's Brigades are all busted up at this point because those frontal assaults they keep doing. So by noontime, Breckenridge, his division, that reserve division we talked about, they have to be called up already. Mm-hmm. So by noontime, you already have the reserves in John K. Jackson's brigade or the Withers Brigade, uh, Withers Division joins on my Bragg's guys. They're on that Union left because don't forget, that's the game plan. They need to hit the Union left and they're going to turn their left mm-hmm. and they're going to push them. Stephen Hurlbert's there. He's going to spend most of the time there in a place called Bell Farm. The Rebs are going to attempt to basically sweep around around that union left. That's the, that's the original plan. There's a U.S. colonel by the name of David Stewart. He's a lawyer from Chicago. He's in Sherman's division. He's guarding that Hamburg Road on the Lick Creek, as I mentioned before. He's on that extreme left. So he's kind of like the David Ireland for the Gettysburg peeps, mm-hmm. right, of this battle. On the far left of Grant's army, he's posting the peach orchard out there. Herbert's division and Stewart's right is, is just a few hundred yards away. So, that, But that's pretty much where the end is. Stewart's going to get hit straight on by Chalmers and John Jackson's troops. And some of Stewart's regiments end up taking off. Matter of fact, Stewart loses them, doesn't know where the hell they went. They just took off and he can't find them. He's going to fall back and he's going to set up his defense 400 yards back. And he's only going to have like 1,200 total guys because he only has two of his three regiments because mm-hmm. one of them's gone. He's going to hold up Chalmers for two hours just with those, which is very impressive as hell for him because what it does, it slows Chalmers' move north before he ultimately falls back. So he's like a, that speed bump that gives the Union a little bit more time to set up the defensive line. So that's where he is. Again, it's, it's chaos. It's out of control. The Rebs are doing well, but they're running out of steam a little yeah. bit. This battle is a true clusterfuck. I mean, if you think 
Chickamauga is that way. This one is even more so, especially I think because they are green troops. But meanwhile, all this is going on is you have Grant making his way there and he makes a little stop at a place called Crump's Landing. And who does he see there but General Lou Wallace. And this is where he tells Wallace he needs to move. And this is around 11, 11.30 in the morning. And he's going to be supporting Sherman's 5th Division. So apparently there's a few different stories about this because we all know there's a little bit of controversy regarding Lou Wallace. So apparently the orders were not written down and were just something verbal. That's one story. The other one is, is that they were lost. And that's because they were given to Wallace's adjutant, a guy named Frederick Neffler, who places them in his sword belt. They just disappear. It's kind of like not clear what is going on with that there. One thing that Wallace does do, though, is he does note in his autobiography that the Union was completely taken by surprise at this battle, which maybe is why Grant is not a big fan of him (laughs) to some extent. So Wallace argued that the orders were very vague and that he was like, Grant is saying that I told Wallace to go to Pittsburgh Landing by way of the River Road. And Wallace said, like, I wasn't told to go there and I wasn't told which road. But still, Wallace is going to take the Shunpike Road and an orderly from Grant comes to find him to wondering where the fuck he is. And Wallace is informed of the Union troop positions, which by this time Sherman's no longer at Shiloh Church. If Wallace had kept going the way he was, he would have found himself in the rear of the advancing Confederates. So he's got a countermarch all the way like all the way around so this is why he gets slowed up and there's a lot of controversy surrounding poor wallace with this but that's what grant does is he makes this stop before he gets to to where the battle's happening he's got to stop and talk to lou wallace he went to the wrong pittsburgh was the problem apparently and that's what it was so it just set the scene where so we're, we're approaching lunchtime here on april 6th 1862 at shiloh okay you got the union retreating back the Confederates are moving forward, but they're in a complete mess. The Rebs are starting to get stalled now because of the terrain and the feds are doing their thing to push them back. Communication is all screwed up, right? So Johnston is going to have to basically realize, okay, I've, I've got a mutt of an army. They're all mixed up. No one knows who's reporting to who. So he's going to take that battlefield. He's going to do something very different. He's going to take the field and divide into four zones. So he's going to have the left under Hardy, the left center under Polk. Bragg is going to control the right center in Breckenridge. It's gonna be it's gonna be on the far right. That's where you are. That's where you report to. This, this we're gonna do. We're gonna go zones now. The little zone defense are deploying. Beauregard and Johnson are gonna stay back in the headquarters and they're gonna direct what they're gonna do. On the Union right, the opposite side of the target of the Confederates this entire battle, the Reb left is actually out going around them. They end up capturing 17 cannons and over on McClernand's camp. The Union line is going to fall back 1,500 yards to a place called Jones Field. Sherman and McClernand are going to basically, at this point, need to reform their army too. Not quite to the extent that Johnson did with the zone, but they realize we need to get this under control. So they're going to get reinforcements from John McDowell's brigade in, in, Sherman's, in Sherman's army. And they're going to do a counterattack. They're going to advance forward. So the countercharge the Rebs with two Iowa regiments, the 11th and the 13th Iowa, towards a place called Wolf Field. Initially, it's going to work. They're going to push the Rebs all the way back to the Hamburg-Purdy Road. It shows Sherman being aggressive now. So a couple of different things. It's going to help morale for a quick minute, and it's going to put the bug in Beauregard's head that maybe we're not in the best situation we thought we were going to be. So he sees this as a threat now. He calls up a guy named Robert Trebo. His brigade is a bunch of Kentucky guys on a Breckeridge. He's the only brigade left that hasn't been used yet. He's the last He's the last guy in the bullpen. And they're going to bring him up. They want to slow that Union advance. He's also working with Hardy and Polk to reorganize um, those rebel forces on the rebel left on the other side. And the fight really goes back and forth for a couple hours. It just goes back and forth, almost like the Weefield in Gettysburg. Come on, that. It's just... We're going pushing back and forth. By 2.30, the Rebs basically get pushed back again to Jones Fields, and the feds are going to try to stabilize in that area. William H. L. Wallace, the second division commander, he's going to send two brigades forward to help Prentice. Remember before how Prentice needed help earlier in the day when well, they, they finally made it, so we all know who they were. By the guys, by James Tuttle and Thomas Sweeney, they're going to go west to a place called Duncan's Farm on the East Corinth Road. Now, this is the beginning of the stage on the Union right, which is going to defend, which is going to take so much that re- that rebel time for the rest of the afternoon. So Wallace sets up a defense line to block the rebel advance up Eastern Corinth Road. Now, he's going to have him facing west. Sweeney's going to be on the right. Tuttle's going to be on the left. He's got about 4,000 guys for mm-hmm. the most part. This also he is also a very some... similar name to something from Antietam, does it not? Is well, this we do. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. Yep. So he also has some remnants of Prentice's guys. So they're facing Duncan's field. They end up with about 5,000, 6,000 guys and about 20 five guns. Grant's going to tell Wallace, for the love of God, you need to hold this ground at all costs. You've got to hold this because you can, they can't get through here, right? 
So they're going to do that. They're going to line up on a place called the Old Wagon Road, which is second that we talked about, which will later be called the Sunken Road. Now, here's the irony, Mary, about this is, you know, what's not sunken the road. No one knows why it's called the Sunken Road, because it's not sunken. It's just a road, by the by. Probably not, not in great condition from all the rain, though, right? Probably not. Not enough people, but face down. I think that's the problem <laughs> with the road. I think that's, that's the issue right there. But that's one of those things they talk about. Somebody must have called it partially sunken at some point, and it's stuck, but it's not sunken. There you go. Robust is going to extend his line to their right, and he's going to face the south. So you've got one army facing west, and you have another one facing south in that peach orchard. So you've got a pretty strong position right there. Benjamin Cheatham is going to lead his 2nd Division with that Stephen's 2nd Brigade. They're going to advance on that Union line from the southeast. They're going to try to hit that line straight on again. They're told to advance into the woods near that federal line before the feds push them back. Now, one thing we got to talk about, Mary, is the terrain here. Mm-hmm. They say it's a thicket, and I think that probably doesn't do it justice because they'll the soldiers will talk after this battle that a lot of them never saw who they were firing at, and they were close. Between the dollies, there was a flash of the guns, but the, the terrain was so thick going through this it was a complete and utter mess Cheatham's going to fall back he's going to try to move to the right and he's going to try to go with Breckenridge's corps to try to fight Horvath so he's like this is stupid I'm going to go to the peach orchard sounds more fun plus they got peaches we're going to do that the rebel armies to this point again they're all mixed up Claiborne he's there um, Alexander Stewart is there. Thomas Hidman is there. So around noon time, they're going to try this another second assault on this federal center. Um, Hidman, his 2,000 guys, they have three of these little armies that are going to go forward with Claiborne, Stewart, and Hidman. They're about to start. And then Hidman's men say, hey, we have no ammo. What? So they have to drop out. So now you only have two out of the three. So Claiborne and Stewart get pushed back pretty easily after they fall back by Robert Shavers writing, writing that. Mm-hmm. But luckily, Mary, you know who arrives to save the day? Braxton Bragg. Yep, he does. So he, he's going to save the day. Now, he's got a pretty good amount of guys. Mm-hmm. He actually has a numerical advantage, but he's going to screw up because for whatever reason, he keeps attacking this thickest piecemeal just one after the other instead of all at one and we know from other battles that piecemeal is not the way to do it it's not he orders a guy named randall gibbons his first brigade under ruggles ruggles division under bragg to attack they move from that heavy thicket into east and duncan's field the bullets are whizzing and they say it sounded like a swarm of hornets and later will be called the hornet's nest so there you go that's how it gets the name the feds are told do not, you know, don't fire until they get within 20 yards because you can't see them. You're just shooting at trees until they come out of the woods and they're going to get hit and then open fire. And like I said, many never even saw the guys you were shooting at or guys getting shot back. Gibbons, you know, he's, he's begging Bragg. We need more guys. We need, we, and we also, what we need is artillery. We can't do this. We need, mm-hmm. you need to give us some artillery support. Bragg naturally refuses. He says no. And he orders yet another piecemeal <laughs> of attack. He does. Of course he does. Henry Allen, he's in charge of the 4th Louisiana. He goes to Bragg. This is kind of ballsy there. He goes to Bragg and says, what the hell? This isn't working. Bragg snaps. He goes, Colonel Allen, I want no faltering now. That's what he says to him. So Allen's like, okay. Bragg's a bit mood swinging, isn't he? So so Allen gets shot in the face through one cheek and out the other. Oh, yeah. And he's trying to talk. And he's trying to talk with his bleeding. Can only imagine how that goes. And he yells. Just picture this. Blood pouring out. He's got a hole in his cheek. He yells to his, his guys in the 4th Louisiana, here, boys, is a good place as any on this battlefield to meet death. Exactly what you want to hear from your boss, by the way. So Bragg ends up trying about four different piecemeal assaults on this hornet's nest using Gibbons' banged-up guys. Gibbons' guys get pounded, and they go forth, they go back, they go forth, they get pounded, and they get knocked back. Gibbons finally, by about 2.30, says, the hell with this, and he falls back. And the best part about it, you get shot in the face. You order your guys in four different assaults back and forth, right? Gibbons falls back and says, nope. Bragg says after the battle, Gibbon was an errant coward. That's what oh he says Oh my God. So just let that sink in for a second, okay? Robert Shaver's brigade, the ones who lost the ammo, well, now they got ammo. They went they went to the ammo store and got themselves some ammo. They're the next to go into this thicket. It's like a meat grinder. So they go in next and they're going to attack that hornet's nest. They get within 20 feet of the federal line and they get blasted back too. And nope. Next in line is Pat Anderson. He's back. They're going to attack the hornet's nest. Same thing's going to happen. They're going to go forward. They're going to get repulsed. And it's going to keep going back and forth and back and forth. Now, the feds are going to take heavy casualties, too. Yeah, you know, 9th Illinois is going to take like 350 casualties. They're going yeah. to be smoked. 
W.H.L. Wallace, this is where he receives his mortal wound that he dies a few days after the battle ends. He is. He's, he's going to take one here. You know, and then there's, there's so many stories about this. You know, there's a guy, you know, Colonel James Tuttle, his first brigade. He, you know, he, he has a quote. He says the ground was, was literally covered with the enemy's dead. In several places could see dead men and horses piled up with dismounted cannon. Just visualize what that must have been like. It was just a complete and utter mess. Hurlbush on that right side. Now it's about one o'clock. They're starting to get hit too. And this is kind of weird. So Albert Sidney Johnson, for whatever reason, is obsessed with this peach orchard at this point. Mm-hmm. He has to have it. Well, there's troops so that he, he sees not going into it. And he's with right. um, a guy called Isham Harris as well, who Isham mm-hmm. Harris, is he the, was he the former governor of Tennessee? Oh my goodness. I think he might have been. I'm not sure. Yeah. What, either he was. Yeah, yeah, he must have been the former. Yeah. He's know, got something like to do. Something guy, but he's with a guy called Isham Harris. Cool name, by the way. But Johnson wants, you know, wants to attack the Peach Orchard line, which is just, just southeast of the Hornet's Nest. He's going to use two brigades on a Breckenridge by John Bowen and Winfield Stanham. And they're ordered to, to, to cross that Hamburg Purdy Road and attack her. So by two o'clock, they're on. Now, Johnston is going to get himself in a little trouble here, Mary. Okay, we talked before about Wallace, but Johnston, he's leading his troops. He puts himself in harm's way during the attack on the Peach Orchard. He's going to take a ball behind his right knee, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't know he was hit. He's also, his jacket's been hit a couple of times, so he must have been right out. Oh, he's right out. He's got, like, clearly he's got an adrenaline rush going on. And he's out in the thick of it leading his troops because he just, I mean, you have to remember the background to this to remember with Albert Sidney Johnston is he's got the defeats of Henry and Donaldson as well yeah. as P. Ridge. He's had the pressure of D- Jeff Davis on him and he's had shitty reviews in the media as well. Right. He needs to have a victory. So, and he's willing to do it whatever risk and that's why he is putting himself out there and i think that is one thing to definitely take into consideration when you're looking at him with this battle is that he is under a lot of pressure right now we've talked about guy you know guys like george lamb willard you know the harper's very cat cowards we've talked about robert richard garnett last week you know, it's it's almost like that that moment is you see is your moment to redeem everything. Yeah, that's this what Johnson's trying moment. to do. He's got a he. This is redemption for him. This is what he's trying to do. And so he's gonna he's gonna take a ball behind his right knee. He doesn't even know he's been hit. But what it does, it cuts his artery and he's bleeding to death. He's got one of those big high boots on, mm-hmm. and so it kind of masks the injury a little bit. All of a sudden, he starts to wobble in the saddle. Right. Yeah, and his and guys are like, dude, back. are you okay? Like, and so they take him back and uh, they lay him down. By now he's unconscious and he's never going to wake up. They put him down. They, they frantically rip open his shirt and see where, where he's hurt. Yeah, they, they can't, can't find, find the wound injury. at all. And then finally, uh, you know, he's going to die about 2.30 on an injury that probably could have been saved by a tourniquet. Probably. Yeah. And what had happened yeah. to him is in 1837, he had been shot during a duel and he had suffered nerve damage. So he wasn't able to, when the bullet went in, he was not able to feel it at all uh-huh. um, because of that. And it's debated as to how long it took him to bleed out, but he just basically lost consciousness. And he is going to be the highest ranking officer killed in the Civil War, I believe, on either side. I think you're right. I think you're right. There was a rumor, a story that the, the medic who came to find him didn't have a tourniquet because he gave it to a union guy. And there's, there's all kinds yeah, of There's a story that there was a tourniquet found in his pocket. There's a story right. that he sent his surgeon back to care for union troops that had been shot. And obviously they were being, you know, like they were wounded. So they're being cared mm-hmm. for by the Confederates now. But so upon his death, General Beauregard is going to assume command but the one thing that Beauregard does is exactly what happens at Pea Ridge is he says don't tell anybody he's dead because we can't ruin morale and you see this happen at Pea Ridge there's a breakdown in command because of this happening at Pea Ridge but Johnson is out at the front Beauregard is in the back so he really doesn't have an idea of as much as what's going on but he's been asked he's been told to be back here by Johnston to direct you know when they need to throw in Breckenridge's reserves to direct troops where to go but Beauregard is not going to go to the front and then, you know he finds out probably about a half hour after the death he must have been like are you shitting me he like, must have had no, that fuck no, it's not like, happening. Like, like and so the Rebs at this point too they're running out of ammo and that whole thing fell, falls apart while this is going on, on the Union side Sherman and McClernand is still falling back and they're setting up a defensive line to protect a play called Snake Creek Bridge, because that's the place where Lou Wallace, his third division, is going to be coming. So mm-hmm. they want to make sure that the because God knows where the hell he's been, but they want to make sure that he can show the area he's going to come that he can make it. 
because who knows where he'll end up. So they protect that. You know, four o'clock comes and they're st- the Rebs are still dealing with this hornet's nest. They're still dealing mm-hmm. with it. Daniel Ruggles, he's in the first division under Bragg. He sees what's going on with this and he's like, you know what, the hell with this. So he begins to gather as many artillery cannon as he can. And he's going to basically find 11 batteries and he's going to set them up facing that hornet's nest. It says 62 guns, but I think it was really 53. But regardless, for about 45 minutes to an hour, they unleash this artillery right on the hornet's nest. At that point of history, it's the largest artillery attack ever on American soil. Mm-hmm. Eventually, obviously, Pickett's charge will take that eventually over. But this Ruggles battery is going to drive off the, a lot of the artillery from the hornet's nest. It, at the same time, the Union left on the other side is going to start falling back too. And it's going to recklessly expose, expose Prentice's left flank on that hornet's nest. Because as he's falling back, now their flanks are going to be exposed. So Prentice's left flank is going to be exposed. He's going to refuse his left flank's line. William H.C. Wallace, to your point, his troops, they ordered troops to basically do the same on the right side. And there are people leaving there too. So now they find themselves basically by themselves. So Wallace's line is it's going to get turned. Wallace and Prentice are going to be left standing going, what the hell, where did everybody go? They're going to say, let's get the hell out of here. So they're going to order a full withdrawal. By then, the Rebs have surrounded them. There's no, they're not going anywhere. Yep. Some troops do escape in chaos. Some never get the orders to retreat. That hornet's nest is completely collapsed. And this is when Wallace takes his injury. He's going to be shot in the head, left for dead in the field. He doesn't die right away. He's just going to lay there. Which, which Prentice is going to get captured at a place called Hell's Hollow, which is not far from there. And basically, the Rebs are going to bag like 2,500 guys. They're, they're going to go crazy, start cheering and yelling. Prentice has that great quote. He gets caught. And he hears the Rebs all cheering. And he yells at them, yell, boys, you have the right to shout for you have cap- on this day, you have captured the bravest brigade in the U.S. Army. Which I always got a kick out of that. To yeah. be showing bravado, yeah. even though he's been well, caught. And I mean, really, um, they, they are the bravest brigade. Because, yeah, I mean, because what they've done at this hornet's nest, like all this horrific fighting that has gone on, and even though they've kind of lost at the end of the day, it is going to be what has bought time for Grant and enabled him to establish that defensive line near Pittsburgh Landing. Like this has been, right. you know, they're kind of like, you think about it, I think it's kind of like Tilden, the, the sacrificial lambs, I guess, you know? Yeah. Like that's... Well, I, I think to a, to a point, I mean, Tilden was just that one regiment. But yeah. These were a lot more than that. But it, but again, it, it's a situation where a lot of the guys didn't know the retreat had been given to. Yeah. Some of the Union guys didn't want to get their guns caught to be used against them, so they smashed their muskets against trees. There's that story where the, the Rebel Cavalry caught that 12th Iowa flag. It was dragging through the mud laughing in front of them. So you can, you can see mm-hmm. the emotions coming out. For the most part, But we, the thing about it, though, which was ironic about this, was the battle plan was to attack and turn their Union left flank. Mm-hmm. Most of this took place in the Union center to the right. In this hornet's nest, okay, and this is where you have to give credit to Wallace and Prentice. They occupied these Rebs for most of the afternoon in this hornet's nest. Yep. So for every minute they were attacking this hornet's nest, they weren't going they were going away from their game plan. Yep. And um, the other thing that's happening too is there's not really much else going on because of the Confederates that are back in the Union camp kind of fucking around. And that's where Claiborne Hardy tells him, go back there and get those men and bring them here. So Claiborne does that. And he's basically like, "Um, if you're looting, can you not? (laughs) And because he's not their commander, they're like, they kind of half-heartedly, okay, we'll stop. Well, after a while, Claiborne is just like, he can't form them into a battle line. They're basically done. And Claiborne's like, fuck it. And he goes back to the hornet's nest. Wasn't happy. (laughs) But but what what a big part of this hornet's is important though, Mary is while this is all going on and they're occupying, right? It's allowing the Union to set up that defensive place in the back. It's getting dark now. So yeah. Beauregard is starting to think this is, you know, it's, it's getting dark. It's time, almost time for bed. Let's shut this thing down. And so he's going to call off the attack as darkness falls. And so he, while the Union is falling back to Pittsburgh Landing, setting up their defenses, okay? Beauregard is happy as shit because mm-hmm. he's realizing he's in, in his mind, he's in charge of an army that just beat Grant that stem the tide that saved the West. He's happier than you at the, uh, at, the, at the liquor store on a Friday afternoon. He's thinking, okay, you know what? It's nighttime or it's almost done. I'm going to finish these guys off tomorrow. We're, we got them. They're done. So the rain starts to fall again. It just, it's always raining, mm-hmm. these things. Battlefields soaked. There's those stories where lightning is flashing and they're seeing the bodies out there. It's, it's kind of a shitty situation. And for a lot of these guys, this is the first time they've seen this. The Union isn't going to sit back and do nothing, though. They're going to have a couple of gun gunboats, the Lexington and the Tyler, yep. 
are going to spend the night bombarding the Reb lines all night. And they're not going to do much damage, but it's just going to be a morale buster that they're still out there. Beauregard's completely thrilled. So he, he grabs his pen. He's going to write a letter to old Jeff Davis. He's going to say, um, we, we attacked the enemy in a strong position after a severe battle of, of 10 hours, gained a complete victory, driving the enemy from every position. So he's thinking he's he is psyched now. He's, he's, he's the man. There's one guy who we haven't talked about who's not as happy with what's going on. And that's the cavalry guy, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Yeah. Because what he's going to do, he's going to take his troops. He's going to ride around the Union left. He's going to ride up to the Tennessee River, and he's going to see something that's going to make him shit a brick. And that is going to be the arrival of Don Carlos's Buell's army. He's going to see thousands upon thousands of guys, fresh troops, getting off the boats, landing at Pittsburgh land. He's also going to hear about Lou Wallace finally arriving that night as well. So while this is all going on, the Rebs are thrilled they got a big victory. Little do they know that by the next morning, there's going to be about 20, 25,000 more fresh troops ready for them. You know, as, as that night goes on, Grant's going to plan to counterattack the next morning because he knows these guys are coming now. Yep. Grant's going to be sitting there in the rain with this cigar under that tree. Who's going to come up to him? William to come to Sherman. What's and he, he, he wants to, Sherman wants to tell Grant they need to retreat, that they're done, mm-hmm. you know, because I mean, Sherman's built, you know, he's taken the brunt of this attack. And as he's walking towards Grant, he realizes for once I need to keep my fucking mouth shut. And he does. So he walks up to Grant and all he says is, well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day of it, haven't we? And Grant responds, yep, lick him tomorrow, though. Tomorrow, though. So the next day will bring a lot of intrigue. We don't want to spoil the surprise because that's going to be our second part due of Shiloh. But things are going to turn around for the Union dramatically on the second day. So as we leave the battle here, looking again, in a nutshell, it appears the Confederates have driven Grant back. Yeah. He's defeated an army. They've gained a gigantic, gigantic victory. Perhaps they've closed the Tennessee again. Perhaps they can push him all the way back to Nashville, all the way back to Cairo, and reestablish that army of the West again mm-hmm. with all this troops. We'll see what happens. Yep. We'll, see, we'll see how it turns. I'm kind of curious how it turns out. Me too. And and that night, the um, so where the Union had been camped, where Sherman had been camped the night before, rebel troops are now sleeping in their tents. And Beauregard mm-hmm. is sent to, said to have spent the night in Sherman's tent, which I'm sure pissed uh, Sherman off. But Patrick Claiborne is spending the night in an officer's tent as well. And he hears the federal gunboats firing. He knows there's wounded out there. And he says that, you know, some of the shells landed among him and his men, but there was some that landed amongst the wounded, both wounded Confederate and Union soldiers. And he says of this incident, history records few instances of more reckless inhumanity than this. It was ugly. And that's something that doesn't get talked a lot about with with Shiloh. With Shiloh, you hear a lot, you know, like there's the moment with, you know, lick him tomorrow, though, and all that. But there's not this kind of this side of it where what's happening at night with these shells being fired and all that. And that story really stuck with me when when I read it, when I was researching that he's, Mm -hmm. you know, he they're able to hear, you know, if he's hearing it, so is everybody else. You can just picture sitting there in the rain with lightning crashing. Mm hmm. Seeing the, you know, illuminating the battlefield with dead bodies everywhere where you could literally walk and touch the bodies, not touching the grass. The sounds of the, the wounded. Mm-hmm. Again, no one had ever seen this in American history before. Like we said at the beginning, there was more casualties in the Battle of Shiloh than all previous U.S. wars combined. So this this was that moment when, especially for the North, when when old Uncle Blingy and and, um, and Grant went to bed on the night of the sixth. You know they, they you know the Devil's Day is a great way to describe it. Mm-hmm, it is. Um, and if Grant really felt he was going to lick him tomorrow, though. That's great confidence. But again, he had those troops arriving, and that's the big thing too. But that's Grant's and, determination too. I think he was so determined because of what he'd been through with Halleck and all that, that he's got this, you know, there's something similar going on with him that there is with Albert Sidney Johnson, this like Johnson feels he needs to prove something because of how he's being played in the media and all this other stuff. And it costs Johnson his life. I think Grant is in the same boat where he's been accused of drinking again by Halleck and all that. And he's got to prove himself. Yeah, and this this whole war is all about proving yourself exactly. and, and regaining honor. And we see this, we see it over and over and over again on both sides. And it's the human um, side to it, right? It's not just troops on a field that are fighting a war. There's like there's emotions, there's egos, there's everything else involved in this. There's a human side to it. You know, you've got a guy sitting in a tent who's hearing the shells and he's saying, "This is, you know, inhumane. You know, this yeah. is horrible that this is happening." And somewhere, Henry Morton Stanley was reeling from a shot to his belt buckle, and it took him time to get over it. So. <laughs> 
as we leave day one and prepare for day two, we got some stuff coming up. Yep. Now, by the time this thing drops, we will have our finally have our book club. Yes. Which is mercifully going to happen tomorrow. I know. Here. It feels like it's been forever. Yes. Um, but we're going to finally do it tomorrow. We'll do our live on Saturday. We'll get to talk about Shiloh. We'll probably talk about the book club too. Mm-hmm. But as we come back to this next week, the second part of Shiloh, we're going to talk certainly about how the union responds. We're going to talk about the aftermath. We're going to talk about the long-term deaths of guys like Wallace, but also long-term deaths, certainly, of Albert Sidney Johnson. And what that's going to do to the union, especially with the Halleck-Grant dynamic that's going to happen after Shiloh and how it's going to set up the rest of the battles in the West that's going to lead to things like Vicksburg and Mm -hmm. Atlanta. And so, like they said, all these battles lead one into the other, and you got to know one to know the next one. And Shiloh is certainly a big one. And Shiloh is one that... um, is one of those words like Antietam or Gettysburg that's drilled into the American psyche when you hear it. You just it just brings a feeling of just death and destruction. This, this is and one fun. battle that's like Antietam for me. When I hear Shiloh, it, yeah. it's a little bit more. You know, that's where a lot of these guys saw the elephant for the first time. You know, where Grant realized that shit, this isn't going to be over as quick as we thought. You know, there's a one quote where a soldier says, "Of all my nightmares I ever had, I was never as scared as I was at Shiloh." Yep. So off we go to part two. Yep. So part two next week. So thank you everybody for listening and we hope you have an awesome Saturday. And as always, if you're listening to this before 10 o'clock on a Saturday, hope you can join us for our Facebook Live. Those are always a great time. We usually just get on there. We try and stay on topic, but eh, yeah, this is Civil War Breakfast Club. You know how it goes. It is. There are pops in our head. So Mary, again, the pleasure. All yours. We've said many times. We look forward to our book club tomorrow, our live on Saturday, and the second half of the Battle of Shiloh just going to be a lot of fun talking about that so any final words from you thanks for being the awesome co-host you are and to, ah, uh, and to our listeners to for all your support <laughs> through these um i guess yeah what is it 33 episodes now 33 number of larry bird me doing math i'm learning That's easy. It's, it's the same number twice everybody can do that but fucker don't get cocky <laughs> tom solo said once but anyway um have a great night we look forward to talking to you soon everyone thanks for listening we appreciate it and we look forward to seeing you as they say on the other side see you guys later peace out bye <laughs>